welcome to the episode, this episode, to the 355th episode of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Adia Benton, and I'm a cultural anthropologist of public health and medicine um, in post-conflict and um, developing societies. Um, and I'm based at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, but I'm coming to you live from Oakland, California. Today, I talk with anthropologist Amy Moran Thomas, author of Traveling with Sugar, Chronicles of a Global Epidemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on, at, live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, October 11th, 2021, there, are two, there have been 219 million cases of COVID-19 and 4.5 million deaths, 4.55 million deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Scott has been reading an obituary or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now by talking about my father, Joe E. Benton Jr., who died on August 8th, 2021, two days before his 75th birthday. My father did not die of COVID-19, but of a series of chronic conditions that came to a head in the earlier part of this year. As we've learned, COVID-19 has impacted us whether and how care is delivered, and it's, it's, it's especially when hospitals and other parts of our health system are overwhelmed. In reading this obituary, I'm hoping to open up a space to discuss kinship as a critical method, um, and which we'll hopefully discuss with Amy later in the show. Born on August 10th, 1946 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Joe, Joe, Joe Elbert Benton Jr., uh, a senior, and Bessie Burt Benton, he grew up in Seattle, Washington, the eldest of four children. After graduating from Garfield High School in Seattle, where he participated in sports and theater, my father moved to South Carolina to attend college. He is a proud alumnus of uh, HBCU Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina, where he got a bachelor's in social sciences, and he was a member of the Omega Sci Fi fraternity. It was while attending college that he met his future wife, and my mother, Almatine Williams, who was at the time attending another HBCU across the street, Allen University. They were married near the end of 1967. My brother was born in 1969. My father went on to earn a master's degree in social work from the University of Washington in Seattle, where he helped to launch, he was head of the, the graduate Black Graduate Student Union and engaged in activism related to social services and curriculum development that related to the welfare of Black people. Ever committed to social justice and the well-being of his people, my father began working in social services in 1965. Over the course of his five-decade career, he planned and implemented human services programs with an emphasis on youth. He held positions as the Assistant Commissioner in South Carolina's Department of Juvenile Justice, Director of Youth Development Bureau of Health and Human Services, and President Jimmy Carter's administration. He was dedicated to service in his professional community as well. He served as an interim director of the South Carolina State Employees Association, 
where I was told by his friends that he focused on workers' rights and fair wages. He was on the board of communities and schools in the Midlands and the president of the National Association of Black Social Workers. Up until his death, he was the chairman of the board of trustees of the South Carolina Organization of African Unity and a visiting professor of social work at South Carolina State University. With his special friends, Dr. Burnett Gallman and Derek Jackson, my father pioneered African-centered rites of passage programs, graduating over 400 boys and girls since 1990. He was one of the founders of the Christ Universal Temple, where he served as a senior elder of the Elders Council, Council for 21 years. My father loved to offer advice and support to his colleagues and mentees, and I guess I was one of them. I relied on his counsel when Ebola affected the Mono River region of West Africa, where I worked. I called to complain to him that some of my colleagues were claiming that they held unique insight and expertise about the dynamics of spread of Ebola in the region. And in his typical fashion, he answered me calmly and diplomatically and reminded me that we needed all kinds of people and forms of expertise to help. No disciplinary or professional chauvinism was allowed. And this was his unique insight. Psychologists, social workers, nurses, doctors, lab technicians, social scientists, epidemiologists were all needed to support communities and their needs during crisis. In his capacity as an officer in the National Association for Black Social Workers, he helped to develop programs for people affected by disasters. And this included working in solidarity with other social workers in communities affected by Hurricane Katrina. His group also traveled to Cuba and South Africa to learn from and work alongside Black social workers in these spaces. He was an avid reader, and his library was a source of inspiration for all who ventured inside. I learned from him the importance of group study, of reading and writing and thinking together. On Saturday mornings, he occasionally took me to his reading groups where participants discussed their well-worn photocopied texts from Black radical writers. Like his mother, Bessie May, he was also a lover of science fiction in films and novels. And when he came home to rest, my mother queued up his favorite music, old soul, R&B, funk, and contemporary jazz. He loved gadgets of all kinds, even when he had trouble operating them, which was pretty often. And he was constantly wowing his grandchildren with his treasure trove of toys. At his service, and certainly during those weeks in hospice care, a large circle of family and friends surrounded him and all shared their stories about his generosity, integrity, and warmth. We have cherished those stories and memories. So my guest today is Amy Moran Thomas. Amy Moran Thomas is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Massachusetts Institutes for Technology, or MIT, interested in the human and material entanglements that shape health and practice. She received her PhD in anthropology from Princeton in 2012 and held postdoctoral fellowships at Princeton and Brown, where, which is where we met, and um, before going to MIT. Her writing often focuses on the social lives of medical objects. She also works on the cultural anthropology of intergenerational health, planetary change, and chronic conditions. She's also interested in questions of equitable device design, technology and kinship, and the afterlives of carbohydrates and hydrocarbons across scales. Professor Moran Thomas has conducted ethnographic and historical research in Belize, 
Guatemala, Ghana, Brazil, and the US. Supported by the Mellon American Council of Learned Societies, or ACLS, the Wintergren Foundation, the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society, the West African Research Association, and the American Philosophical Society. Her first book, Traveling with Sugar, Chronicles of the Global Epidemic, examines the rise of di the global rise of diabetes as, as part of the ongoing legacies of sweetness and power, including how unequal access to insulin varieties, oxygen chambers, glucose meters, dialysis devices, farming machines, coral reef care, and prosthetic limb technologies can become part of how plantation histories live on in the present. These impact lives and landscapes across generations. She is the winner of many awards, including the James A. and Ruth Leviton, Leviton Research Prize in the Humanities at MIT. Um, I think this one is important, the Diabetes Foot Center Group, foot, is it Foot Center or Foot Care Group um, Appreciation Award, the Curl Essay Prize, which is awarded by the Royal Anthropological Institute, and the David Schneider Award, um, which is, I think, an American Anthropological Association Award, among others. So Amy, welcome. Um, and I'm happy to be hosting you today. Um, let's see. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> so first, that was so beautiful, Adia, um, to hear about your father, just what an extraordinary life. So um, yeah, thanks for the invitation to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's, you know, it's been a hard, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a hard couple of months uh, without him. But, I, you know, it's really, I'm excited to, to have this conversation. Um, as you know, we talk about a lot of the things that are the topic this, of this discussion today, this conversation today. Um, so I think I know where you're calling from. But where are you calling from? And what is your pandemic situation there? Yeah, um, I'm in Boston which is officially marking its first Indigenous Peoples Day um, for the first time today. So conversations around that kind of keep touching back on the whole history of pandemics, um, you know, that are part of how the city came into existence um, on Wampanoag and Massachusetts territory. So I've just been thinking about how COVID fits into all that, you know, in preparation for today. I was looking at the numbers right now and they're both cases and deaths are about where they were this time last year, but the feeling is so different. Um, there's been mm -hmm. kind of energy in the city with the, the Boston Marathon that got rescheduled twice, right. was finally held today. Um, and yeah, that's funny. I, I, yeah, I just, I realized, I only realized that today, all of my friends who ran it were posting on Twitter, like, hey, I ran this. I was like, oh no, wait, what's going on? Yeah, not the right time. And the Chicago Marathon, I think, was yesterday. Hmm. Yeah. Which, yeah. So it, it has it. I don't know. The season changes the feeling somehow. And I don't know. It, it feels like, I don't know, an effort to restart in like some changed way. So, yeah. So, I mean, so the, huh, I, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because. So actually, let me ask you this question first, and then we can begin to kind of talk about your experiences with COVID over the past year and a half or so, because I, I think it's, well, I know it's really important. You've written some really amazing stuff about COVID, but can you share with me, um, say, a vivid memory that you've had of the pandemic so far since since we're starting you know, there? Yeah, sure. Um, so... You know, my husband and I got COVID at like the very beginning, early nice. spring of 2020. And um, 
there's one night that's just kind of like seared in my memory of uh, we've known each other since we were little kids. And he just he woke up. He was already not feeling great, but he woke up one night on our couch, just kind of like like clawing at the air, just like trying to get air in his lungs. And I that was when we very first bought the pull socks that I later came to think about in other ways. But at, at that moment, I was just looking at the number, which was 77. And, um, you know, I've been reading that people are put on ventilators in the 80s. And so seeing mm-hmm. seeing that was, you know, I, just, yeah. I, I won't forget that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that sounds really hard. So, I mean, just for people who are watching who may not know, like, how the pulse oximeter works, if people if, if he's had 77 and, and people people are being admitted at 80 something like what like what does that mean? Yeah. And, and that was like the question <laughs> because it kept, um, it kept fluctuating really erratically. And it seemed like the hospital was used to like, you know, steady drops. Um, right. So um, so they were using 92 as the cutoff for whether or not they recommended someone um, to go to the hospital at that point. So when we called hospital triage, um, you know, as long as it came back up after he woke up, they would just say, stay at home. Um, and, but, you know, but it felt like we were just in this weird in-between space where it felt like there was clearly like proximity to danger right. <laughs> um, that, uh, that the hospital didn't have a way to um, recognize or, you know, just their interventions weren't made for that. And it was just... Right. You know, so I just remember being in that space and like he was afraid to fall back asleep. So we both drank a bunch of coffee and watched um, the rock movie, The Rundown. (laughs) (laughs) um, A lot of positive energy in that movie. (laughs) um, So that that that's my most vivid memory. Wow, that's that's actually um, that is quite vivid, actually. So I can imagine that, and we'll talk about the fever dreams and the, the note of notes from the fever dream. I think is what it's called, um, like the rock kind of featuring prominently as 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 Frank goes uh, grasping for breath. Um, so a question that I think is the the sort of one of the standard boilerplate ones, um, you know, as, as you you as an anthropologist of devices and, and diagnostics and all of these really cool things. Um, what are the numbers that you care about beyond, say, the death totals? Like, how should we be counting COVID? And and the reason I'm asking this question is, um, like, in that piece where you actually, so there's a piece for, for the people who are watching, there's a really amazing article that, that Amy actually presented this at a, a like a weekly seminar that, that we usually go to. And it was published, I think, in Anthropology Now. Was it Anthropology Now? Um, and it was like this really vivid multimedia presentation that was quite beautiful, but also this weird dystopian reading of their experience of having COVID with this really brilliant anthropological analysis associated. But there's this moment in which you describe like the data points of COVID as like the projection of the bureaucratic unconscious. And I was, I was, we were all very moved by that phrase. Um, can you tell us like, so what does that mean? But also how should, like, how, what should we be doing? How should we be counting? Like, what's the important way to count the COVID hmm. thing that isn't just like 4.55 million um, deaths? Yeah. 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 No, that's such a beautiful question. 
that, well, so I'll start with the projections of the bureaucratic unconscious, which is a phrase I'm borrowing from one of the psychiatrists who also um, just kind of mentioned it offhand at the Friday morning seminar when we were talking about the different kinds of institutional regulations that were being coming into being kind of at the very beginning and how disjointed some of them seemed or that kind of like managerial logic that institutions gravitate toward often feeling so mismatched with the actual care that people kind of needed. So, you know, there were like these military ships coming in and, um, you know, different kinds of buildings being converted into clinics that uh, there weren't actual people populating at that point. And, but then like nobody would answer the phone if you called, um, you know, (laughs) and something about that. And, you know, it makes me think too of your work on, uh, you know, projections and thinking about how something about that psychological meaning of the term is never far from public health models and projections that are conjured with so many, you know, always with some kind of background um, perspective that's often not being acknowledged and like the the way of counting. Yeah. And um, yeah. And it played out just in so many ways. Like, you know, for us, it meant we couldn't get COVID tests because, um, you know, a lot of the symptoms we had at the beginning, like um, headaches and sore throats that now would be recognized weren't on the kind of algorithmic list Mm -hmm. yet. Um. And, you know, and continue playing out with like the debates around long COVID and when NIH had that conference, you know, there are people who are like unable to see in one eye and things like that, that, um, where it's sort of, uh, you know, there's still so many symptoms that don't count, um, you know, on uh, what insurance will cover, what doctors will recognize. And so, um, yeah, those numbers are... um, the ones where I tend to focus my thinking and ethnography, like the, the space between bureaucratic recognitions of, um, of an illness experience and what people actually say is happening to them or feel happening to them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny when you were talking, it reminded me of the fact that, so my brother was also an early COVID um, mm. I guess, early COVID survivor, um, actually his entire family, except we don't actually, so my brother, it's my brother, his wife and his two kids who are actually adults, um, in their twenties. And they were, li- they, they were living together at the time. My, my nephew came from New York, he's very sick. Or actually he was never sick, but my brother who has a, an autoimmune di- uh, disease mm. got very, very sick. Wow. His wife, not so sick. My niece, was sick for like a day. Um, and so three of them got tests, but the one, but the one who was fine never was tested. And so assumes that he was just sort of this miracle of, you know, immunological greatness. He just was in the same space, but never, um, never sick or, or, but we don't, we will never know if he was, you know, COVID positive or whatever, but you know, it posed problems because they were kind of, my, my nephew was actually the person who was, um, helping out around the house, like, you know, going and doing groceries and also helping my, my parents mm-hmm. during when my dad wasn't feeling great. And so my mom was sort of freaking out, like, 
is he positive? Is he not? Is he endangering us? <laughs> you know, it, it sort of created all kinds of, um, you know, just seeing those kind of disparate things happening in the household. So yeah, yeah like that, that whole idea of what counts, they all had, and they all had very different symptoms. They all, and I mean, it also reminds me of Ebola where we didn't know that there was such yeah. a thing as sort of post Ebola syndrome or the fact that the, the most recent outbreak in Guinea was caused by someone who was sick five years ago. Hmm. So like, you know, mm -hmm. like, so, so how do we understand this new virus and what counts um, yeah. is, is really quite important. And I, I am glad that you were able to kind of like tease that out with the, you know, using your own experience and actually being able to pull that out. So, which of course brings me to that next question about the, the pulse oximeter that you, so you wrote this piece, everyone's going to think that I, that I'm just sort of like in superlative mode, but I'm like, it was so great. It really opened my eyes. This Boston review piece that you wrote um, about the pulse ox, which you, you described how, how your husband's numbers were fluctuating. Um, but this, 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 your experience with COVID was the thing that, that kind of got you doing the research that led to this Boston review piece. Tell us about that. Like that, that's something that I, I think, um, Lots of folks got got a chance to read about. Um, not everyone got to the original source. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I kind of want to talk to you about that. Um, <laughs> the, the Boston Review piece and the New York Times and all of that stuff. Let us in. I mean, if you feel like if if you feel like that, like I, I don't know how how much the New York Times really needs to be brought yeah. to task. But. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, well. Yeah, since we talk about diagnostic devices all the time, you know, like I teach a class um, at MIT that's the social lives of medical objects where we're basically like prying open devices and seeing how they work, you know, with engineers and then also reading social science pieces. And so um, just having this new thing in our home, I was thinking about them, you know, as an anthropologist of medical technology and not just um, as a worried family member, um, especially right. as time went on. Mm -hmm. And I could see this uh, red light inside um, kind of like glowing in the dark. And there's such an STS literature. I think of Ruha Benjamin's work, for example, you know, and this kind of infamous soap dispenser. Um, but there's so much work about how light sensing devices um, don't work as well on non-white people when they are programmed basically, um, you know, using populations that are mainly white. And so I started wondering, like, how did they fix this error in this device that's being positioned in such a central way as like the thing that's telling us whether or not we're allowed to come to the hospital. Um, right. And like the word biomarker was being used. Bring out your calipers now. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I... You know, the more I started digging, um, I reached out to manufacturers and the FDA, just kind of trying to get comments. Um, and this was around that time, you know, it was June 2020 by the time I was like really doing research on this. And MIT participated in Shutdown STEM, where I got to talk with a bunch of engineers who were like, yeah, this is like a, you know, a technical, a fixable um but not fixed, uh, you know, <laughs> issue. <laughs> right. And so, um, yeah, so I submitted this op-ed 
um, to the New York Times, which had sort of published an op-ed that first suggested everybody go out and buy these devices. So it seemed like, I don't know, the place that story made sense to. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember everyone saying you need like three things in your house. You need the pulse ox, a a thermometer and, you know, whatever else, some other like basically stuff for dealing with the the, uh, symptoms. So, yeah. So you're you're like this needs New York Times needs this op ed since they're telling everyone to go out and buy this pulse, this thing, this diagnostic device. Let me tell you some problems. Like <laughs> there is a problem with these. Everyone can't use them to the same effect. Yeah, and there were, you know, there were all these studies. Um, I understand that a lot of doctors might not have time to reach out to manufacturers or engineers, but you know, I got a chance to do that, and like it seemed like, um, yeah, something that people would want to know. So, um, yeah. So this part's a little delicate to talk about, but I feel like it is actually important to talk about because it's, yes. you know, part of these it's, bigger, yeah. It's knowledge production in the middle of a crisis, right? Like that's what we're getting at, right? Like yeah. we're learning all this stuff every day, the diet, everything is changing and t- people are telling you do this, do that, and you're protecting yourself. So, you know, I know it's delicate. You don't actually have, to, if you feel a little bit, you know, weird about it, no, um, no, I, like the, it's interesting. Recently, the authors of the New England Journal of Medicine study that kind of ended up being a follow up to this um, spoke kind of publicly during grand rounds about how they had trouble publishing their study initially when they submitted oh. it. It got rejected the first time. And it made me think, you know, I re- we all should be talking about this because it's part of a bigger, you know, much bigger thing about how hard it is to. Um, I don't know, try, try to think in the gray areas of things that are taken to be medical consensus. And so, right. Yeah. Um, so, so I, you know, I would never like name names in this part, but I think the bigger thing is worth talking about, which is, you know, right. That, um, so basically the piece, um, was under contract with the New York times and the day before it was supposed to come out, it ended up getting pulled. Um, and I think the the best thing about working with the Times fact checkers were that like everyone actually wrote back to my emails, you know, so all the manufacturers, the FDA. So um, so I did get kind of a, a sense of the the stories being told by, you know, all the key actors, which was like, really helpful. Um, so but the manufacturers, the three who were um, whose devices had been assessed in the most recent study, which at that point was in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, so I reached out to all of them. Um, the one company who I'll name by name because they are kind of like the, um, have done the most good work in this area is called Nanin. Um, and they, uh, you know, tried to make their devices comply with FDA regulations for people of color, not just white people, um, which seems like, a it should be built into <laughs> what the FDA right. expects of everybody, but it's not. Um, and so, um, 
they and they said that they hadn't done any further work since um, 2007 when that article was published. But they were the only company at that point whose um, devices seemed to be meeting FDA requirements for everybody. Um, The other two manufacturers who responded both cited this study from 2017 about um, Polsox efficacy on newborn babies. Yes. Which, um, you know, it's been shown <laughs> for decades that, you know, applying baby studies to adults when it comes to pulse ox accuracy is just like misinformation because melanin is still developing. Newborn skin has a different microstructure. It's just like the one population where this issue um, doesn't show up. And so anyway, so the, the kind of issue with the manufacturers I could provide data sh- like debunking it. And the New York Times seemed right. able to kind of like go, you know, the fact checker and I could have a conversation about that. And um, it still was sort of moving along. Um, right. But it ended up being like liberal doctors who blocked the piece. They just kind of didn't feel it could be true. You know, they looked at the data, didn't have any other data. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just felt there was no way that it could matter um, right. in practice. And, um, and the it is, there's no way that the fact that this thing misread, this device misreads oxygen saturation for people who are not white, people who have dark skin, it would not matter because these doctors would have this interpretive capacity to correct for things. That's, I mean, I'll just be, is that what, what happened? That, that was basically the implication. <laughs> yeah. I asked some doctors. That's why I, I'm sort of, I, I was like, you know, you know, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm married to a trauma surgeon who, who said, well, any very good, anybody who actually has black patients knows X. But, you know, I also said, well, if you're making these decisions on the basis of somebody's home hmm. pulse ox device, then what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and there's so many ways, I mean, machines are talking to other machines. Like there's not even always a doctor's discretion Mm -hmm. involved. And besides the fact that there are huge amounts of data showing, you know, really the exact opposite tendencies among many physicians, you know, in, um, whether technical biases are interpreted, um, in the favor of recognizing patient distress and providing equal care. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, so it was just this weird moment because it was the same month they published Tom Cotton's op-ed. <laughs> and like, <laughs> so, you know, and, and the whole justification was like, well, we need to tell like both both sides of the story. And for all the problems of like both sidesism, it was like this really weird thing that like, OK, well, why not have the doctor who disagreed with me write a piece and I'll write a piece about why I think this data does matter. And then there can be a Right. you know, dialogue about um, what that means for, um, you know, COVID in real time. And so anyway, so it, it was like, for me, it was kind of disillusioning, but I think it was also uh, a good remind, a helpful reminder mm-hmm. <laughs> how many stories and like this there are and struggles for recognition and how difficult it is when it's um, a medical authority, you know. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I want to get back to this, but I want to remind viewers that we're while we're on COVID calls, um, we're we're 
happy to have you here. I'm Adia Benton, who's, I'm guest hosting for Scott Knowles, and this is our guest, Amy Moran Thomas. We're talking about the pulse oximeter piece that she wrote in the Boston Review. Um, she's just explained to us how the New York Times pulled the piece the day that before it was published because it was slightly controversial in that it maybe pointed out no, it definitely points out the, the racism built into in a, in a device, right? The sort of technological bias, the, the racist algorithms that we, we always hear about. And you did cite um, Bruja Benjamin's work in particular, but um, a lot of other folks who are writing about this. So um, I want, so let's, let's pick up from that. The New York Times, they're like, we trust this doctor who, who says that it doesn't matter, this, these data points are only a part of the story. We do all of this, like, you know, great work. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I sound very cynical, but I understand this this um, this tendency because I've also we. I mean, we also saw this gray area stuff around the airborne versus droplet infection mm -hmm. data as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, which we probably should not get into because I. So what happens after the New York Times? It you you. Yeah, um, so I, I changed, I changed a bit the framing because then I felt like the story wasn't just that there was this issue with the device. It was also the story, all the stories people were telling about why that was fine, you know, and mm -hmm. all the different ways it had been normalized and with different accounts by like different actors. So I kind of expanded the piece a little around that, um, I don't know that that take. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah. Submitted it to the Boston Review, um, where the editors there were, you know, amazing. If anyone ever has kind of uh, a piece on health issues, where you know having someone besides only doctors be kind of like the storytelling gatekeepers <laughs> um, <laughs> to <laughs> to its publication um, is helpful. That you know, it's a pretty amazing place to go because they have a lot of STS readers and yes. um, reviewers, and so. But yeah, I mean, if there's anything STS teaches us, it's that doctors don't always have things right. And, you know, as you were just alluding to with the aerosol issue, but I mean, there have been so many things like that in the course of the pandemic where, you know, um, it's not just public's misunderstanding things, it's experts, you know, trying their best, but not having it right. And sometimes speaking in like this fully authoritative <laughs> way as if there's like no questions, you know. Yeah. Left, and, so. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you make a, it makes a lot of sense to think about what, how, it, how difficult it is to live in the gray area, how difficult it is to navigate that when people kind of want certainty from something and from someone, from our experts. But I think one of the things that I feel like we've been learning is that as long as folks are really open about the gray and the fuzzy and the sort of uncertain, it feels a lot better. Right. Um, and, and I think that's been the, the, the challenge with health communication. I think that's been the challenge with a lot of the communication around um, public health during this, this epidemic. So, um, and I, I really appreciated that piece. So what ends up happening with this, which I, I also love, and is that some doctors see this piece in the Boston Review and they say, huh, this is a great hypothesis to test. 
let's go back through all of our clinical records and see if we if we can actually verify the claim that's being placed here because it actually does matter for care. So you want to pick up on that part of the story? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they and this team was out of University of Michigan and um, had a database already set up for some other studies. So they were kind of able to look at uh, their metadata in a really interesting way. <clears throat> and um, yeah, they found that the errors um, of pulse ox misreadings that could be clinically significant were about four times higher um, among black patients in these in their hospital systems. Um, <clears throat> and for certain cutoff points, uh, even more people could be kind of misclassified. So um, for example, I think it was um, it was using one of the kind of thresholds that's often used to decide whether or not to admit somebody um, where 50% of black patients were being misclassified actually. And so, um, so, you know, there are these like certain numbers where just being a point or two off actually can matter. And especially with the kind of algorithmic creep of, um, you know, that, that kind of computerized decision-making. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so anyway, um, the, the story kind of finally made its way out there in the world through their study. And, um, and I have a lot of admiration for their study. And I think um, that that team of physicians has done a lot of important work trying to advocate and um, also, you know, trying to uh, credit the social scientists um, who who's for example, I think it was Ruha Benjamin's Twitter feed, um, mm -hmm. where um, where they first came across the article, and you know her book has been so influential, and so they were already kind of doing a, a whole set of readings, um, kind of leading up to that moment. And so mm -hmm. when reporters kind of started contacting them to tell the story, they they kept kind of pointing back to that, and journalists sort of didn't. <laughs> <laughs> up <laughs> well i can tell you how i read it because i had a very violent like twitter reaction to it which was i read the new york times and i said oh this is really fabulous i'm so happy that these physicians did this study i'm so glad that they sort of proved you know it's it, it definitely teases out like the ev you know the evidentiary mm -hmm. you know uh got the the evidentiary I guess status of of numbers and 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 basically said yeah like the stuff that these social scientists these qualitative social scientists were saying is true okay so that's what the first thing and then it became this they they published that was the New England Journal of Medicine um, as a letter so not even a fully not even the peer reviewed thing it was a, as a letter and then they actually um, it got a story in the New York Times. And I remember reading the story in the New York Times, and I think they just referred to you as like a lady whose husband got sick and you just sort of got curious about, <laughs> you know, you were just suddenly curious about the pulse ox. And I was like, no, actually you're talking about an anthropologist who upon recovering from COVID symptoms was able to kind of track and trace in a systematic way, the ways in which manufacturers were building were 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 basically uh, they were manufacturing and building devices that were inequitable in their reading like they they were they were 
I keep calling it racist algorithm, but you know what I'm saying? Like they're incapable of detecting, um, detecting illness in black and brown people. And in that story, the, the physicians are named, other physicians are, are quoted and the person for who, basically the, the social scientists, the women social scientists for whose work inspired that research was downplayed. That's how I read it. And so I got a little bit upset on Twitter and, and it sort of changed. It, uh, <laughs> the, the, article, the article was revised, I think, <laughs> pretty quickly. But I had a little bit of a moment where I was like, okay, guys, this, I, I, I get it. Like doctors or clinicians are much more like quotable and stuff. But, but this, is not, this is not the case. The, the way that the story was being told was one that, that um, I think was... I want to call it sexist and also, but, but it was a lot, it was a lot of bad of things that I was not pleased with. So I'll just, um, <laughs> I'm being yeah. really inarticulate about the fact that I, I actually felt like all of the debates that we have in our discipline about quantitative and qualitative knowledge about the status of physicians slash clinicians versus social scientists who mm -hmm. study medicine and health, the, the ways that our, the knowledge claims that we make have different value. And they have different value in our major publications. And so I, I kind of called it out. Yeah. And I was, re because I found that that piece that you wrote was actually quite foundational for, and, and, a, and a really good way for us to kind of make people aware of this problem with the pulse ox. Yeah, no, I think what you're saying about the disciplinary piece of it, because I mean, the gendered thing is somewhere there too. And, you know, being called like a concerned wife <laughs> rather than, um, you know, like everyone else um, who was an associate professor named in the article was named as such. Um, so, so that was like striking, uh, like a few days after the Dr. Jill Biden thing, especially. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, but I think the bigger thing is about disciplinary knowledge production and just I think the the difficulty the Times had in um, assessing the piece in the first place when there was pushback from doctors it is comes from the same larger systemic issue that in how the story got kind of mistold later, and mm -hmm. they both seem like part of you know just the fact that a network of SCS scholars you know became part of educating doctors about these studies, which were, you know, also studies by doctors, you know, in their own right. medical journals, in their own textbooks, yes. um, you know, that, that that had to happen and then kind of was told as if that wasn't any part of how medicine corrected itself. You know, they all just seem part of the same um, symptoms of what's some issues in like larger information ecosystems, you know, right. that include medical school. I mean, it's so much more than just our right. patients, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it starts, it starts early. <laughs> we, we learn these things early. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're socialized as anthropologists. We, we, we get to see, we have, we're, we're guilty too. So <laughs> we have our own ways of thinking. So now I'm kind of interested in this. I, I think I'm going to skip the fever dream stuff because I'm interested in the thing that happened with the wired piece. Because mm -hmm. so so after all of this pulse ox um, stuff died down, 
you you got some, you know, I think someone called you or someone reached out to you, um, an older a clinician with a, who understood sort of the longer history of the, of the device, um, reached out to you and told you about um, Hewlett Packard. Was it Hewlett Packard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and their, you know, their thing about trying to make um, a, a machine that actually reads consistently and, 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 and effectively across difference. Um, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was an interesting kind of email to get. And that doctor, it was quite interesting. Anyway, um, Maya Krieger, who's done a bunch of work on um, post-polio. So mm-hmm. a lot of the um, sequelae that took a long time to recognize um, after that uh, pandemic um, sort of that, that emerged in old age, for example. So anyway, I, I think of him as um, someone who pays attention to the unexpected, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. kind of um, things that can actually end up being quite consequential, even though they might seem minor at the, the time. And so um, so I was paying a lot of attention when he mentioned that um, actually he had an uh, oximeter that he thought was like the, the best um, best one that's yet been made. And, mm-hmm. um, but really, I think the thing that made me end up wanting to write that piece was how many emails I got from, um, some people were engineers. Um, some people, you know, were I, differently situated, but, um, saying that, I just didn't understand there was no way this problem could ever be fixed, you know, like that the, the pulse oxes as they're made now um, just couldn't be otherwise. And so, um, so this earlier device where engineers had, you know, tried to um, be much more inclusive in their data sets, but also make the light settings adjustable. Um, so there just wasn't this default built in, um, you know, mm-hmm. to, to work only, um, you know, basically with full accuracy for, for white patients um, was really striking, you know, just and just imagining what what could the technology be like now if those had been the sets of questions invested in for the past 50 years, um, yeah. you know. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I was I, I remain interested in how that happens, although some of the details are kind of fuzzy. Um, right. So um, I wish it was possible. I reached out to Hewlett Packard, but they're sort of not, um, and, and they responded kindly, but um, there, there wasn't anyone who remembered, you know, that institutional memory sort of um, was no longer present or at least not accessible to me. The engineers who are named as, uh, you know, key to that patent um, have, have now died, um, some of them quite recently. So, um, so I imagine... Um, an STS student, like digging deep into archives, might be able to to find more about the story of how how did that um, goal kind of come into being to engineer mm-hmm. a more equitable device at the time? You know, right. who, who was at the you know who's on the scene? I'd be very interested to know. <laughs> right. I mean, I think doesn't Hewlett Packard have like a an institutional archive? I feel like it does. Yeah, I I think it would be really interesting for someone to do that. Um, right. Yeah. It, it um, seems like it would be a very interesting um, research project. So, yeah. so I mean, for people who haven't had a chance to read that piece or have no, like, 
conception of what that what that old pulse ox could have looked like? Can you tell it? Give us like a little bit of of flavor. Like tell us like what did it look like? Like you know, <laughs> when, when was it manufactured? How you know little things like that. Like how how did it get to where it? How did it did it did it travel? Um, that kind of thing. yeah yeah. Um, so, and that's a great question because it looks a lot different. You wouldn't even know it was an oximeter. So, um, and it wasn't a, so it didn't use pulse um, right. technology. Um, mm -hmm. So it looks kind of like a record player, you know, it was much larger. It had mm -hmm. a cord that ran to attach to your ear. Um, and mm -hmm. that, they actually had a whole interesting discussion about that too, because um, in addition to all the racialized inaccuracies that we've been talking about, um, pulse oxes today are made for uh, a man's finger geometry. Um, and so they, that can also create issues, um, for, um, you know, for people with smaller fingers, um, often women. Um, and if you have any kind of chronic health issues, which so many people being hospitalized do, you know, the, the hands are one of the first places circulation problems tend to show up. So they had a whole discussion of why they chose to use the ear um, because circulation there wasn't as affected by shock or, you know, all kinds of different kinds of chronic conditions. Um, so, um, so anyway, the, the different kind of way the device looked, those were also device, you know, design choices um, mm -hmm. that there were um, reflections on in at least the, the public um, newsletters that, that circulated in the time, which is quite interesting. Um, but yeah, it mostly looks like a record player. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool though. So, so where, but where did these things end up? Did they end up in like hospitals? Were they in doctor's offices? Cause I actually remember having like a little thing that they clipped to my ear when I was like a really small and I wonder if that's what it was. Yeah. You know, my dad said that too, um, that, uh, when he got his tonsils out, that's how they were. Oh, <laughs> so, fascinating. Um, the, um, so yeah, there's a whole interesting backstory where Hewlett Packard was working with NASA at the time. So, mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the earliest non-invasive devices kind of came from that history and then migrated slowly into clinics from there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that might have something to do with the, um, you know, some of the focus on questions and priorities that weren't being invested in in clinical contexts. Um, right. So, you know, this was around in the 60s into 70s, um, you know, Apollo 1 had exploded midair, like that was a huge deal. And a lot of it had to do with um, the, the oxygen that was in the vessel. And so, um, so part of the reason there, there was such an emphasis on accuracy in these devices had, you know, one imagines um, might have to do with like this very public spectacle of a science mistake, um, you know, and it really mattered to kind of know how much oxygen the astronauts were taking in to know, you know, all kinds of things about the chemistry of um, the, the voyage. And so anyway, so it, it's interesting to think that um, this clinical, what became, uh, you know, maybe the most, possibly the most accurate uh, oximeter that's been developed so far, at least according to, um, some of these accounts um, actually kind of made its way into medicine, um, you know, as, as a as a secondary right. thing from priorities elsewhere. Yeah, 
Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah, which is a lot of, well, most of the things I study, they come from war. <laughs> <laughs> they come from the military and war. So it's mm-hmm. it's sort of funny to kind of like, oh, space travel, a little less, <laughs> a little less of a military situation. Uh, <laughs> never clinical. Um, so I have one... Now I'm I'm sort of like I keep going back and forth thinking about all the things. So you've written so many interesting things uh, recently. Um, I part partly want to talk about Fever Dream, um, but I I feel like it's it, it's the it's the esoterica. Like I the one thing that I remember the most from that piece, but also it's performance, which I think is part of what was so attractive about that essay was the use speaking of the military the use of those um those like robots those like <laughs> those military those like d what were they they were like d um yeah the dr spot the <laughs> i think was it dr spot yeah is that it's it's the dog that's supposed to sniff out bombs or something yeah mm-hmm. yeah, right. yeah. Okay. an adaptation of <laughs> yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. yeah um which was just maybe the most, um, well, well so <laughs> I don't maybe know, I should put it this way. That's something you encountered when you were sick, right? The, the ER where I was assessed, they yes. were, um, they were tested the week after I was there. Um, okay. during the time my husband was there. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, um, but they also, besides using pulse ox technology, by the way, <laughs> among other things. But um, yeah, I don't know. There was just such a sci-fi feeling to like the anything goes experimentation of that moment that um, I think they just felt like very visceral figures <laughs> of like that, whatever that was. Of, get, well, you know? give me, get, okay, again. Give me a visual since you don't have your your PowerPoint of these dancing robot situations. Um, these are ro- so so so. The way that I remember it is this, and please correct me, is that these there are these um, robots that were originally tested for sort of um, doing checks for bombs and and going to going from house going house to house to make sure before humans entered to, to clear it for safety. Um, so these things are now entering people's, the people who are sick are now having to interface with these, these robots who are, whose, whose, I guess, original purpose was to be able to kind of make the battleground safer for soldiers or police. Yeah. Um, and you know, the teams that were bringing them there was very much with, um, you know, kind of a humanitarian um, sensibility of wanting to, you know, do something for the pandemic and kind of trying out this device across different spaces. Um, but it it did feel a lot like, or, you know, watching the videos of the Massachusetts police roll them out and then thinking, like, what does that mean for people who might have encountered those in the communities to also find that you know, find that in the hospital position does. Yeah. A caregiver in the hospital. Um, and, and they're adapted a bit, but they had like, um, a, a picture of the caregiver's face being carried around on, um, the kind of robot body. And, you know, I just thought to myself, like that, 
a caregiver's face on a screen, if, if that needs to happen for, you know, um, for health reasons, could also, you know, it, it would be, it would feel completely different if that screen was mounted on like a table or, you know, like um, furniture, you know. Right. Um, so there was just something about the whole, um, yeah, the, the whole scene of just how patients' perspectives just felt, or it felt like part of um, what we were talking about toward the beginning with, you know, um, that not being part of the <laughs> bureaucratic unconscious <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that was being articulated. Like just what, what would it be like for patients to, um, to interface with this, with care that looks like this, you know? Um, yes, absolutely. It's something that I, yeah, it's something that we worry about all the time. Um, like what does care look like when uh, many of your tools are not tools developed for, the, for care? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, we are at co- this is COVID calls. Um, we are almost at the we're almost at the end of our hour. But I wanted to um, make sure that I introduced this show and to this COVID calls. I'm Adia Benton. I'm guest hosting. Our guest is Amy Moran Thomas. We've been talking about um, diagnostic devices, but also the kinds of um, medical tools or the kinds of tools that have cross-purpose or, or um, new purposes in the health in health facilities and in healthcare. So, Amy, since we're getting um, <laughs> very close to the end of our time here, I was wondering if there's anything else that you've been um, thinking about. I know, like I said, your um, you have this book that came out, a, a, I guess, a couple of years ago now, um, leading into all of this this COVID stuff about diabetes um, and about all the tech, various technologies associated with um, with with detecting and, and, and um, well, ad- dealing with, with one's, one's sugar me- metabolism. And so I, I'm curious if there's anything you want to say about that or and how it might be linked to, say, some of the concerns you have about COVID. Um, yeah. 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 No, there's so many ways the, I mean, conditions of all kinds, I guess, are, you know, um, overlapping right now, but, um, but it's definitely been a pretty brutal time for, um, well, just to speak from the context I know best, which is, um, from the the country of Belize where I had, uh, did the project that you mentioned and, you know, hear, hear from people most often, but, um, yeah, insulin has been so difficult to get, um, you know, because of all the supply chain interruptions, people are just afraid to go to the hospital, as you were mentioning, you know, toward the beginning, like, mm-hmm. I mean, the care system being re- rewired in this way has shaped care for everything, you know, um, yeah. and grieving processes for, for everything, you know, people who can't get together in the same way when things do happen. And, um, yeah, home foot care has, um, kind of largely been curtailed for a lot of like contagion concerns, but yeah, um, yeah, there, there have just been so many um, 
you know, very bodily implications um, besides people who are, you know, have experienced getting both or have both moved through their household. Um, You know, there are new cases of diabetes, both type one and type two that seem to um, result in some cases after having COVID. Um, So, um, so that, yeah, but they're, they're just, there's so many um, ways the conditions are coming together. And as you said, that the, the medical technologies, um, to assess each of them are curtailed in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. um, but the, the attention they each receive kind of brings me back to the question you opened with, you know, in relation to what, what counts and how should we count? And, um, you know, so many diabetes deaths for all the undercounting happening around COVID there, there is something of a, um, you know, a, a global spotlight on um, the, the condition, at least writ large, that um, so many other slow disasters kind of have um, never um, had that, uh, yeah, fullness yeah. of recognition. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. No. I, you know I know about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the exceptionalism is happening every single time, right? Like we, we yeah. devote all of our efforts um, to so many. We, we we lose sight of the continuum of care that's that's possible and necessary. Yeah. You know, so what is going to happen to folks who are newly diagnosed with diabetes? I had read a recent that study about um, COVID causing diabetes, um, but also people like my father who um, actually had, had was suffering from complications of diabetes by the time he mm-hmm. um, he passed. So um, I think we're at the end of our our hour. Um, This has been an amazing conversation. I've been really, um, it's been really good to catch up with you and to talk to you about these these, um, really evocative, wonderful pieces. Um, I know that they've come up, um, they've been, the Scots been putting them up. So what the one that's about, um, actually your book, Traveling with Sugar, Chronicles of a Global Epidemic, uh, with California Press from 2019. Um, Pulse Oximeters used to be about Zion for Equity. That's in the Wired, that's in Wired Magazine and the Boston Review piece. And also the New York Times piece that <laughs> quotes the New England Journal of Medicine piece that resulted from Boston Review. So this has been a really wonderful time. I hope to see, well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to see you um, off the call, but it, it'll be great to um, reconnect at some point. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our viewers. Uh, again, a reminder that you can watch COVID calls daily at 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. There are multiple ways to watch. There's Periscope, YouTube, um, Twitter. So um, I will see everyone maybe some other time if I guest host again. That's great.